We are continuing this morning in our Enduring Kingdom series. It's a teaching series through the book of 2 Samuel. And it, uh, in 2 Samuel, really looks at the reign and rule of David as king over Israel. And this morning we are tasked with looking at chapter 5 and chapter 6 together. It's kind of another big swath of text Uh, And so just like last week, this week we won't read the text out loud, but I would encourage you to read it at home, and I would encourage you to read it several times and meditate on the things we talk about and on the the words of the text itself uh, throughout the course of the week. Obviously, I'll make reference to different sections of the text, but we won't turn there uh, in its entirety. What's fascinating about this particular section of Scripture is that it is sort of like a collage uh, or sort of like a highlight reel of, of you know, several different storylines that are kind of put together, not necessarily in chronological order, but they're pieced together in order to make a point. So kind of like at the end of, of a sports season when a team will put together like a highlight reel of all the different things. Well, a highlight reel might not go from game one to game two to game three, but it'll take all of them and kind of put them together, and the point is to... to make a point of how great this team was or this player was this year. And the storyteller in 2 Samuel is doing the same thing. He's taking a bunch of different stories and he's kind of putting them together in order to show us as readers or as listeners a particular point that he's driving at. So in 2 Samuel chapter 5, there are really three big stories that happen. Uh, The first part of 2 Samuel chapter 5 is David being received as king over all of Israel. Whereas before he was just king over Judah, now in the beginnings of 2 Samuel chapter 5, all the tribes of Israel welcome David as their king, and they're united together as one nation. And the second storyline in 2 Samuel chapter 5 is the conquering of the Jebusites and the taking of Jerusalem by David and his army. So there's this great victory that happens at Jerusalem. The Jebusites are conquered. And David takes Jerusalem and makes it actually the base for the whole kingdom. And this is significant uh, because this was previously unoccupied land. So think about in our country how uh, in the beginnings they were trying to decide where to place a capital. And they uh, purposely put it in between northern and southern places, kind of not in a specific territory by itself, so that there would be kind of a universal buy-in to this place's capital. And David kind of does the same exact thing by choosing Jerusalem as his capital, also putting it technically in the territory of Benjamin, which is kind of a shout-out to Saul and his tribe uh, as well. So David is thinking about these things. And then the end of chapter 5 is this crazy series of battles against the Philistines. Uh, And the Philistines are conquered kind of once and for all in the lifetime of David. Amazing uh, um, vignettes and stories of the powerful move of God on behalf of David. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we have the story of the Ark of the Covenant being brought into Jerusalem, uh, the new capital uh, of of the nation of Israel. Of course, the Ark of the Covenant, if you're not familiar, is sort of the, the dwelling place of the presence of God. Uh, It's a large box encased in gold uh, where God would dwell uh, amongst his people. And so bringing that into Jerusalem is significant uh, in announcing this uh, dwelling of God with his people. 
So that's kind of the big overview of what's going on in these two chapters. So what then is the point that the author is trying to drive at? And what I want to suggest to you is the point the author is trying to get us to understand is that now finally the Abrahamic covenant that God had made with Abraham is being <clears throat> excuse me, fulfilled once and for all, as it were. And we understand it will be fulfilled in bigger ways, but in the nation <clears throat> of Israel. How do I know this? Well, I know it from the storylines. I also know it from how the story starts. So when David is received as king over all of Israel, the, the elders of the tribes come and meet around him, and they say, we believe that God has anointed you as our king, and we will now make covenant with you. There's all this covenant language that's happening there. Uh, and then, of course, at the end of chapter 6, we move into chapter 7, which we'll talk about next Sunday. And, of course, chapter 7 is God affirming this big covenant and now laying it on David, as we call now the Davidic covenant, that God will uh, allow the, the, uh, David and his descendants to uh, have royal position or royal reign over the nation of Israel, he says, forever. So it's bookended by this covenant language, and really in it we see the final full fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So let's call time out for a minute, and let's review uh, or reintroduce what on earth is this Abrahamic covenant that Adam is talking about. In Genesis chapter 12, if you remember, God calls out to a man named Abram, and he says to him, I am going to make a great nation through you. Uh, Now, there's a couple of reasons this is going on. Uh, Of course, the first 11 chapters of Genesis have all kinds of highs and lows, if you remember the story. God's with his people. Things are great in the garden. His people rebel. Things are not great in the garden, right? Uh, Things are good outside of the garden. The people rebel. We have Noah. We have a flood, right? Uh, And then it leads all the way up into the end of that section with the story of the Tower of Babel, where the people are trying to get themselves to God of their own accord, and God confuses their language. He spreads them across the world. Now, it's in this confusion that God reaches out to this man, Abraham, and says, I'm going to keep pursuing this reality of being with my people. And he says a couple of things to Abraham in chapter 12, and then again in chapter 15, then again in chapter 17, and really he repeats it to Abraham's son, Isaac. He repeats it to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. He keeps repeating it thereafter. He says it to Moses, and that's the means by which uh, the people are delivered from Egypt. And he preaches it to the people through Moses uh, throughout. So here are the things that, that are kind of core to this idea of the Abrahamic covenant. The first is that God says he's going to make Israel a great nation, right? And this is fascinating because if you remember anything about Abraham, uh, his wife can't have children. And so this is a miraculous thing that God's saying. In fact, Abraham uh, and his wife laugh at God when he tells them that there's going to be a great nation that comes from him. They're very old. They can't have kids. And how is God going to do this? Well, we'll let you into a a big point that we're going to talk about this morning. God does things on his terms, in his timeline, and through his power, not through the ability and effort of humanity. And of course, Abraham uh, and his wife give birth to a son who is Isaac, and it does lead ultimately to this great nation, this great 
uh, number of people. Abraham, God had said to Abraham originally, your descendants will number as much as the stars in the sky. Imagine being this old man who has no kids and being given this promise from God. There's a second thing that happens in the Abrahamic covenant, and that's where God says to Abraham, not only will, your, will you have this great nation, he says in Genesis chapter 17, but out of this nation will rise kings, right? Out of this nation will rise kings that will, that will uh, not only lead the nation, but will be revered by nations outside of you. And then thirdly, he says, uh, not only will you have this great nation, and not only will there be kings that will be revered by the nations uh, outside of you, but I'm going to give you a land. He says, the land of Canaan will belong to you in an everlasting way. So Abrahamic covenant, great nation, land with kings who will be uh, revered by the nations around them. But there's really something more significant in the Abrahamic covenant than those components. There's something subtly there. And it's basically the simple promise that God says, I will be your God. Right? So he says to Abraham, he's going to be a great nation, there's going to be kings, there's going to be land, and it's just kind of tucked in there, and I will be your God. And the land is great because there's a place to live, and the nation is great because there's people to occupy it, and the kings are great because there's people to lead it. But the true power and meaning of the Abrahamic covenant is that God is going to dwell again with his people. This is a Garden, Eden, garden of Eden-like reality. In fact, when Moses is preaching about it, uh, and when the law is being written in the book of Leviticus, this is how the covenant is summarized. He says, you will be my people and I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I want to suggest to you that 2 Samuel chapter 5 and 2 Samuel chapter 6 are all about the presence of God uh, and what it means to Israel and to us as his people and what it means for us to dwell with him as our God. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, we finally have the king that God had talked about. We have the great nation, and in conquering Jerusalem and in defeating the Philistines, we finally, once and for all, have the land of Canaan in possession of the nation of Israel. Certainly Joshua had conquered the land, but he hadn't done it in its full way. And really, at the end of Joshua and the beginning of Judges, there were battles all around the city of Jerusalem that were victories, but they were never able to take the fortress that sat up on the mount, the, the fortress of Zion. And so all of these things were kind of never fully realized. And now, in these two chapters, we finally have the full realization of it. Let me pause for a minute and just say something. It's probably about 800 years from the time God makes the original covenant with Abraham until this great victory in Jerusalem by David. David is inaugurated as king. The kings revere him. How do we know that? Because in chapter 5, there are kings outside who bring in uh, materials from their own land and build a royal palace for David, right? 
And so all of this stuff is, is happening in their midst. There's 800 years between the promise of God and what is seemingly its earthly fulfillment. I need to pause and think about that for a minute. And here's what I think the takeaway is, church. That there is no amount of time, there is no vastness of distance that can threaten the fulfillment of God's promises. Right? There is no amount of time, there is no vastness of distance that can threaten the fulfillment of God's promises. We probably, well, if you're like me, would operate on different timelines than God, and we probably would get it wrong. In fact, Peter lets us into a little bit of a secret when thinking about the fulfillment of God's promises. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, listen, God is not slow to keep his promises. We might think 800 years is pretty slow, right? Peter says, God is not slow to keep his promises. And then he gives us a, a, a defining statement phrase behind it. As some would count slowness, he says, right? Now, I'm all about pace and speed, so I count slowness in a hyper fashion, you know? If there's one person in front of me at the self-checkout, a giant, I'm pretty frustrated, you know? Because it's, it's typically someone who doesn't know what they're doing and, quite frankly, has too many items in their cart and has no business being there because this is how I count slowness, right? You know? Uh, and if you ever want to get in line to the Chick-fil-A on 248, don't bother counting slowness because you'll be there forever, you know? <laughs> Never mind that. God, Peter says, listen, God is not slow to keep his promises as some count slowness. And then he, def- he redefines what we call slowness. He says, in fact, God is actually patient. Wanting as many as possible to reap the blessing rather than just a few. Do you see it? God's not eager to kick the Canaanites out. He would much rather them turn and worship him and be part of God's great kingdom that he's building. God's not quick to just build a kingdom for Abraham. He wants the great nation to be part of it. What we define as slowness is actually defi- should be defined as divine patience. And actually the attempt by God to bring as many people into the enjoyment of the kingdom blessings as possible. We'll spend the rest of our lives trying to redefine slowness. I get it. But Peter gives us a hint at why God doesn't seem to move the way that we want him to. And we see it in this story, and we see it in powerful ways, uh, God coming through. So what I want to suggest to you as we move through is we'll take that definition of, of the Abrahamic covenant from Leviticus chapter 26, you will be my people and I will be your God. And I think we can have a pretty good overview of 2 Samuel 5 and 2 Samuel 6. 2 Samuel 5 is about you will be my people. 2 Samuel 6 is about I will be your God. Right? 2 Samuel 5, you will be, I'm going to emphasize, my people. 2 Samuel 5, I'm going to emphasize, I will be your God. 2 Samuel 5 is about what it means to have the presence of God with us. 2 Samuel 6 asks the question, how do you live in response to the presence of God being with you? Right? What, how do you respond 
to the presence of God being with you. So, 2 Samuel chapter 5, you will be my people. What does it mean to have the almighty, everlasting, powerful creator God in our presence? What does it mean for the nation of Israel to have his presence with them? Well, quite dynamically, it meant incredible victories, right? Incredible and stunning military victories. First, there's this victory over the Jebusites uh, and the conquering of, of the fortress of Zion at Jerusalem. No one had conquered this in hundreds of years. I mean, 800 years since the promise. So much so that when David came up against it to lay siege on it, the people, the Jebusites, were yelling out to him things like, even if we were lame, even if we were crippled, even if we were blind, even if we had all kinds of incapacity, you still couldn't conquer this place. And they were living on all kinds of history and truth that no one had been able to conquer it. And somehow, in one fell swoop, through the power of God, David conquers this impenetrable fortress. Now we have a little bit of a secret. We don't have much time to get into it this morning. Uh, but you can do some research on it. The, the, the fortress, uh, and this might, might, might not interest you, but it interests me. The fortress there at Zion in the city of Jerusalem was so impenetrable because even if armies would lay siege to it, they had secret access to water and supplies that could, that could have them outlast any conquering army. And archaeologists have found uh, remnants of these tunnels that would lead all the way down uh, into a, a source of water that was camouflaged and blocked off so that no one knew that the city could access this water. But it's written in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that David is responding to their taunts, basically letting them know, I found your source of water. <laughs> and so in cutting off their source of water, most scholars and historians believe David is able to cut them off at the knees and to conquer and finally bring this land into submission as God had said it would be. Fascinating story of God's power in the midst of his people. And then, even more dynamically, we have this, this story of the battle against the Philistines, which really uh, encapsulates two separate battles that are talking about here. Most scholars believe this battle against the Philistines happened before the taking of Jerusalem, but no one is, is quite sure. Uh, and be, the reason they believe that is because it says that the Philistines, the reason the Philistines attacked is they were not happy to hear that Israel had united together. And they wanted to take the moment to try to attack it uh, before, the, before it could kind of get stable and get power and get significance behind it. Uh, but it says David moves down against it. And, and in 2 Samuel chapter 5, there's this very interesting picture that develops where the Philistines are lined up on one side and the Israelites are lined up on one side, and it's called the Valley of the Rephaim. And the Rephaim in uh, Hebrew it's, uh, speaks about a particular tribe who were known to be, listen to this, giants. Now we have a very clear picture of something that had happened in 1 Samuel, now happening again here in 2 Samuel. You remember the story in 1 Samuel where the Philistines are lined up? And the Israelites are lined up, and there's a giant down in the middle, a guy named Goliath, who is taunting the Israelites, and no one will fight him. And then David goes down, and he defeats him, and then it leads to this great victory. 
Well, now in this valley of the giants, we see the power of God moving against the Philistines. And we really see the power of God in a couple of ways. The first is through his divine guidance. David, as he constantly has been doing through the stories, says he goes and seeks the wisdom of God about what to do. And God says, you should attack the Philistines. Uh, And of course, David does, and there's a victory. And then the second battle, David again goes to God, not assuming on God that everything would be the same as last time. And God says, this time, rather than attacking from the front, he says, you go all the way around and attack from the backside. And again, there's significant victory. In fact, that's the last we'll hear of the Philistines in the entirety of the life of David as king. But it's not only God's guidance when David goes to him for direction, but the storyteller really wants us to see is that God is the hero of the battle. So all this time, David's name has been getting great lore, and rightfully so. He is the giant killer, right? And he's taken Jerusalem, and all of these battles have happened. But as the storyteller is beginning to show us some of the chinks in David's armor that we saw last time, the way he mistreats women, uh, his collecting of power uh, through wives and through alliances, things like that, God now wants to show us, he wants to pull back the curtain, the storyteller does, And show us the source of David's power is not his human military acumen. It's not his being really great with a slingshot, right? It's not any of these things. It's actually all about the presence of God. Because now in the valley of the giants, we see not David with amazing victories, but the storyteller uses very specific language to say that God fought these battles And David was just there. In the first battle, when the Israelites rushed straight into the Philistines, this is the way the storyteller says. He says it it was as if God had broken out against the Philistines. And the language there is almost language of like a raging flash flood that overwhelms a dam and levels everything around it. And then David and the Israelites are kind of just there. In fact, it says of David and the Israelites that they picked up all the abandoned idols, right? So God moves through, levels everything. There's this interesting juxtaposition of the power of God in battle versus these lifeless idols who are left to be carried away to their destruction. This is an amazing picture of the power of God. And what is David seen doing? Carrying away the idols to get rid of them. God is the power. God is the warrior. God is the victory. And then in the second battle against the Philistines, the reason that God instructs David to go around and attack from behind, he says, wait to attack until you hear the sound of people marching on top of the poplar trees in front of the Philistines. Now, who is this? This is God in the army of the heavenly host attacking the Philistines from the front. And David and the Israelites being able to come in from behind and clean up the mess. The storyteller wants us to see that if you're interested in protection, if you're interested in guidance, if you're interested in great and significant victory in your life, it is not about your human acumen. 
towards victory. It is not about your prestige or your place of power. It is not about how you can act in the moment. It is all about the presence of God with you. The curtain has been peeled back. How on earth did David kill that giant? Because God was with him. How did David conquer Jerusalem? God was with him. Is David that smart that he found the source of water when 800 years of people could never find it? Or did he then too seek the guidance of God and God said, here's what you need to do? I think we know the answer. David certainly is an incredible military uh, uh, hero, but only in so much as the power and presence of God is with him. Do you see this? And the storyteller wants us to see this because the nation of Israel is now about to experience the presence of God with them, no longer just with the particular leader. And so the nation of Israel needs to hear it. But it's not just the nation of Israel, it's even readers like us. We'll read stories like this and think, well, that's great. So once upon a time, God was with David and he defeated the Jebusites, whoever they were. And once upon a time, God defeated the Philistines. That's wonderful. But I'm living this life now and I'm facing all of these incredible hurdles and God doesn't seem to be winning any great victories for me. And I would point you back to the truth of the difference between slowness and patience. And I would also remind you of this reality. The presence of God was with the people of God because God's anointed was amongst them. And his name was David. And today we can be certain that the presence of God is with the people of God because God's anointed is with us. And his name is Jesus. Jesus promised his disciples and therefore promised us in Matthew chapter 28 that, lo, listen to this, I am with you even to the ends of the earth. But there is no place that you can go that can distance you from the presence of God with you because of your union with Christ. In fact, Paul says, based on your union with Jesus, you have been given the Spirit of God as a down payment guaranteeing full reality of God's presence. You have it now and will have it in its fullness in the coming age. The presence of God is with us. And so, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, since we have this great high priest, nothing is keeping us from approaching the throne of God with Boldness for help in our times of need. There is no difference between you and David seeking the wisdom of God. God's presence was with him because he was God's anointed. Access to God is with you because you are joined to God's anointed. And his name is Jesus. Unless you think that God is not active winning incredible victories on your behalf. Let me remind you of what the Apostle Paul told us. That our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spirits of this world, the principalities of the air, right? And so you should believe 
that there is the sound of marching on the tops of the poplar trees, that there is a great breaking out and leveling reality of God amongst the enemies that seek to sift you like wheat, Satan said of Peter. That God through Jesus is, 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 is waging an incredible campaign of protection and of assault against the forces of evil and against the spirits of evil in our world. That we will never know in its fullness in this lifetime all of the incredible ways that God has protected us, all of the incredible ways that God has advanced against our enemies, all of the ways that God has leveled the ground in front of us so that we can march in front of it, all of the ways that God has laid lifeless those who would claim to be God in our midst so we would not serve them. And certainly there is pain in this lifetime. And certainly there is struggle. And certainly there are hurdles that we would like in our definition of pace to overcome. But might it be possible that God is defining it as patience so that more than just you, the full collection of those who would believe might be able to experience the blessing and benefit of the kingdom of God. The presence of God with us is incredible. You will be my people. I'll be with you. Power, protection, and guidance. And then the next chapter asks us a really poignant and important question. So then how do you respond to the presence of God with you? And we're given two stories that are juxtaposed right next to each other. In fact, literally are happening right next to each other at the exact same time. There is David who it says is celebrating with all of his might in front of the ark as it is being brought into Jerusalem. And behind them are a group of Kohathites whose tribe uh, in particular, uh, whose clan or cluster, whose job it is to transport the ark. And we have this story about Uzzah, which is deeply troubling to many, who as the cart is pulling the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem, sees the oxen stumble and the ark of the covenant began to tumble and he goes to stop it and in touching the ark meets his earthly demise. He's killed instantly. And at first blush, we're reading a story like this and think, gosh, he's transporting the ark of God into the city of God and this happens? The storyteller wants us to think a little more deeply about this than just taking it at face value. Because the truth is that Uzzah is what I would call either unaware or uninspired by the presence of God. He's either unaware or uninspired by the presence of God. In fact, the Kohathites had very specific instructions when dealing with the Ark of the Covenant. A couple of the instructions, of which there were about three or four, a couple of the instructions, first, never touch the Ark of the Covenant. You say, well, it was falling off the cart. Why? He shouldn't, there should be an exception. We don't want it to hit the ground. Well, do you know what one of the other instructions was for the Kohathites? Never transport the ark on a cart. Literally, that was one of the instructions. 
And they're like, well, this will be easier because they were called to carry the ark on long poles with their own weight, right? Never looking at it and never touching it. And whereas you have this king who is celebrating with all his might about the reality of the presence of God with him, you have Uzzah, at least, and probably the whole collection of Kohathites, who are either unaware or uninspired by the presence of God with them and looking to just get through and get it done as quick as possible. I wonder if sometimes we're a little bit like Uzzah and his clan. If what I said is true, that because we're joined to Jesus, then we have the Spirit of God within us, that means the presence of God is with us wherever we go, not just here on Sunday morning. Do you sometimes find yourself either unaware or uninspired by the presence of God with you? We know the answer to that question, right? There are times when we pull the presence of God on a cart instead of knowingly carrying it with us where we go. In fact, I think the Ark of the Covenant stands in pretty symbolic ways to us, because for the Kohathites, the power of God was contained to a box in which they placed him. Now that's straight up applicable to our lives, isn't it? For many of us, the presence of God for us is contained to the box in which we've placed it. And therefore, only powerful when we let it out. And God says, no, 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 no. It's about me. What would it mean for us to not be unaware, to not be uninspired by the presence of God? See, in the same way that you will be my people, God is saying, I will be your God. David not only celebrates in front of the ark, but the second time they try to bring the ark back in after all the situation with Uzzah is settled and and the fear David has about bringing it in is taken care of, it says that he leaped and danced with all of his might as the ark was being brought in. Now, to a German dude like me, this is the scariest thought ever possible, right? Celebrating with all my might, I can get away with that somehow because I can define that. But now we've got more specific. He's leaping and dancing with all of his might, right? And this is crazy, right, to think about what's going on here. But the truth of the matter is it's really not about the external manifestations of what is happening. It's about the fact that his heart was so given in worship to God that he was literally unconstrained by how he behaved. Do you see it? You can be solemn and silent in your worship of God and have the same unconstrained heart towards God. I think sometimes, though, God calls us to get just a little bit giddy about his presence with us. And David catches some flack for this because he's got a wife who's like, whoa. She's watching, she's watching from the window of her house, and this is what she says to David, right? This is a great line. She says, my how the king distinguished himself today in front of all the people. That's almost a direct quote. You can read that. Uh, and, and I think she said it just like that, right? Uh, and this is David's response. He says, listen, I would become even more undignified than that for the presence of God. What does she mean when she says, my, how the king distinguished himself today? She says, you're a king. Act like a king, right? 
You're a king, act like a king. And you're doing this in front of all of the people. There are two core questions that she's really asking to the soul of David. The first is, is your life about your own honor or is it about honoring God? Simple question. Michael had one answer. David clearly had another. And then secondarily, are you more informed in how to live by the opinions of others or by the opinion God has of you and therefore the opinion you have of God? Michael would say, we need to answer those two questions very differently than David. And David would say, oh no, I would be even more undignified than that. I don't even know what that means. How could you be more undignified than that? I can't even think of it. Dancing in public is about the scariest. Most people are afraid to speak in public. No problem. Dancing in public in front of everyone is the most terrifying reality. So if you ever ask me to do it, I would say I will not be more undignified than that. It's not happening. And yet there is David, like a crazed man, doing all of this. Why? Because the only response to the presence of God with us is a life given in worship to God. It's why in Romans chapter 12, when Paul is writing to the Romans, he spends 11 chapters explaining the truth and the power of the gospel. And then in chapter 12, he says, therefore, on the basis of the gospel, our only acceptable response is to offer ourselves as living and holy sacrifices in worship to God. How do you respond to the presence of God? By yelling loudly in your soul or out loud, you will be my God and nothing else will. By a life of what I will call uninhibited worship. Now there's two ways to think about that as we finish up here. We can think about that when we sing songs on Sunday morning. Well, maybe I should be more uninhibited. Raise my hands, sing louder, say things back out loud. The answer to that is, yeah, probably sometimes you should, right? But if you are doing things to get a reaction from God, then you've missed the whole story of this book so far. God is interested in your heart. So do not start adding external manifestations that aren't the natural outflow of your heart. But you can start asking yourself the question, do I really deeply know the presence of God with me? And is it informing how I sing and worship to him on Sundays? Listen, hands in your pocket, hands raised, singing loud, singing softly. One is not better than the other. But a heart fully given to God in worship is better than a heart half given to God in worship. But there is a bigger question, church. God really in many ways could care less about how you sing on Sunday morning. Because worship for him is not about a once a week religious celebration. He says many times, I don't want your sacrifices to the people, right? I don't need your Sunday mornings, he would say to us. I want your life, he says. And so when Paul writes to the Romans and when he speaks of worship, he's saying how you live matters, right? And the only way to rightfully respond to the presence of God with you is to give your life as an offering of worship to God.
What would it mean, church, if we were less defined by being unaware and uninspired by the presence of God in our lives? And what would it mean to live a life uninhibited in worship to God that is less concerned about honoring ourselves and more concerned about honoring Him? that is less concerned about the opinions that people would have about us based on the choices we make in worship to God and much more concerned about who God says we are and therefore who we say He is. Hey, once and for all, the Abrahamic covenant is brought to its final and ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. Land is no longer Canaan. It is the body of Christ. The presence of God is with us in the person of Christ and we are joined to Him. You can be certain of the promises of God, His power, His protection, and His guidance through Christ to you. And therefore, as we leave this morning, we must ask ourselves, how then should we live? Can I pray with you?